Welcome back to episode three. Uh, this episode, I had a friend of mine by the name of Joseph Shaughnessy join me for a little blind tasting fun, but I have to throw a caveat out there. Um, the quality is going to be slightly different from what you're hearing now to the conversational pieces. I'm learning that I can't record this in my kitchen, and so I'm working on a solution for that right now, but I just ask that you bear with me a little bit for this episode as I work on that. Um, I asked a couple questions at the start of the conversation with Joseph so he can elaborate on his past and tell us how he ended up in the wine culture. And since then, Joseph has achieved a lot in the world of wine from certified sommelier, French wine scholar, WSET level three and diploma candidate. And he's uh, the events officer for the Oregon Wine Experience. He's also a fellow army veteran, which you know, all encompassing technically, I think he outranks me. Uh, he's also trying his hand at winemaking over the past year, and so we touched on that briefly before we jumped into the blind tasting at the end. If you like what you heard, please review and rate this podcast, and if you want to hear anything more specific, please reach out with any and all of your feedback. And so without further delay, I give you Joseph Shaughnessy and Blind Tasting. Alrighty, well, I'm here with Joseph Shaughnessy. Um, thank you for, for taking some time out of your day to come and sit down with me. It's my pleasure. This is awesome. This will be really fun. Who knows where we're going to go with this, yeah. but, but that's the funnest <laughs> part, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to start from the beginning. We've known each other for a couple of years now. Yep. Um, you've helped me through a lot, um, but I'd like to start from the beginning if I can, and maybe this could help other people that are just now getting into wine. Um, when I first got into wine... I didn't know that I was even going to get into wine until one day I found out I loved wine. <laughs> so as far as you, like, when did you know you were going to pursue wine or when did you want to get into the wine culture? Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's really difficult for me too because I, I grew up in a place where they just don't make wine. I grew up in Tennessee and, and they don't, I mean, they do make wine. It's not good. So not most of it. Where um, at in Tennessee? Uh, I, was, I was a military brat, so I grew up in Clarksville, but then I went to school at University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Go Vols. Um, I feel like I'm just entitled to say that, even though I haven't watched a Volunteers <laughs> game in forever. Um, but uh, yeah, no. So I moved out. I moved out here um, uh, in 2010, uh, early part of 2010. Here's Southern Oregon. Yeah, in Southern Oregon. Sorry. Um, and I, I just kind of answered it. It's really crazy. I answered this like Craigslist ad of somebody needed a roommate, and I was just anxious to get out of Tennessee. And so I moved out here on a whim. At the time, you know, I had wine, but it, all the wine I had had was like relatively cheap Merlot, which was kind of the fashion of those days. Uh, this is kind of right around this, the the sideways days and those kind of things. So it was still on the shelves. And then and then like these like blackberry infused crazy, you know, really weird southern Tennessee or mid-Tennessee wines that weren't good. So when I moved out here, um, I answered this Craigslist ad, so I needed a roommate, and I just wanted to get as far away from Tennessee as I could, so I moved out to Oregon, and uh, it was about as far as I could. I mean, <laughs> Hawaii's got a big ocean getting out there, so in any case, I came out here, and the first job I got, um, I started to put my you know, resume in a bunch of places, and the first job I got was at a, a bottle shop that no longer exists, unfortunately. It's, um, it was Allison's of Ashland. It was like a sandwich shop, uh, kitchen uh, sort of utensil. And you can buy like, got nice chef's knives and a bunch of kitchen items. And there was a really nice bottle shop. Um, and uh, Jeff Parr, who was uh, my boss there, one of the co-owners, he was, while not a sommelier, he was the first person who really started teaching me about wine. And it was it was kind of a stark difference. Like he, I came there and he first thing he asked, like, okay, what do you know about wine? I was like, oh, not much. And he goes, okay, what wine do you like? I was like, I don't like stuff with blackberries and stuff in it. And I mean, that's like, 
man, I can only imagine how much he cringed <laughs> hearing me say that. Like, who did we just hire? And so he he poured me some Syrah. I think I think one of the first the first few wines I remember drinking from here were like Del Rio Syrah or Del Rio maybe it's Del Rio Pinot. Abacella Tempranillo and a Syrah from somebody and Quadi's label had just sort of take, started taking off in 2010 so uh, I can't remember who the Syrah was from but he was like well this is Syrah and this is what we drink in Southern Oregon and it's like and I remember tasting it going wow this is really good it wasn't this it was no learning curve of like well it's not sweet or you know it wasn't no, there's was no learning curve of like oh I couldn't appreciate the nuance it was like oh this is really good and I just almost automatically knew it and um, I really liked working there. I liked wine. I started really getting really into into that scene. And unfortunately, um, unfortunately, that job went away because of the financial downturn. But that was really the genesis of of me kind of getting in there. And it was also just somebody basically kind of showing me the door, and I'd be walking through it. That's funny. A lot of people tell me they don't like wine, but I just think they haven't come across a wine that they like For yet. Sure. But but when you're presented with good wine, you know it. Yeah, you like, know it. It's like right off the bat. It's like some there's something about it, and I don't know. I I, I there's something clicked right then. And you just and, and I kind of just loved it. Yeah. So from there, you say you're a military brat. Mm-hmm. From that point, 2010, you're working at this bottle shop slash pizza place. Yeah. And well, sandwich place. Sandwich, yeah. not pizza. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No worries. Um, that's kind of unexpected. How did you take the leap from that job into the military? Yeah. So that was also really strange. Um, I guess I, there's two big leaps that were very odd. The leap into the military and the leap back out of the military, I think, into um, into the wine world. The leap into the military was kind of a combination of, a, of something I'd always wanted to do with my life and then a forcing a, a position economically of having to make a decision. Uh, at that time, you know, I was, I was pretty strapped for cash. I had just met my now wife, Molly. We just started living together. And um, I lose the job at Allison's, not because of any failure of my own um but because it just they closed down the doors one day we went into work and they're like hey we're closed um and that was because times were tough in 2010 coming off the recession and uh so now that kind of accelerated well i got to do something with my life and and i've always wanted to fly helicopters so i don't know maybe maybe the army will take me and I, i kind of halfway didn't expect them to take me into a flight school program you can do and for those who don't know it's like you can basically they call it high school to flight school in the army but really, it's like if you have a college degree nowadays, if you have a college degree or have any hours in a helicopter, you can basically come straight into the Army, go to basic training, come out of basic training, go through what's called warrant officer school. And then out of that, you go through flight training um, after survival school and stuff, obviously. But um, uh, we can get into that. Yeah, well, I've, I signed a couple NDAs on that <laughs> one, so I've probably maybe off camera. Uh, so in any case, uh, um yeah, so basically, I kind of came into this position of like, well, I have to do something. I've always wanted to fly. I've always wanted to fly. Like that's still right now. Like right now, I'm looking at it, it's a beautiful day out. So though cold, I'm like, I would love to fly right now. Um, but uh, so I was like, well, let me try it. And they took me in, and and next thing you know, a couple of years later, I'm flying helicopters in Germany. So so you joined the army looking to fly helicopters. Yeah. You didn't change your mind during any process. No, I mean, I I, I signed a contract. My con my initial contract with the army was with the the. Uh, designation the MOS designation was 09 whiskey that is warrant officer candidate so I came into basic training as a specialist as a warrant officer candidate where did you go to basic at uh, for, relax and Jackson Jackson, relax and Jackson. yeah easy easy peasy over there and then from your basic did you go straight is there an for, AIT for you it's, or it's do you a go straight, straight to warrant yeah officer? so I mean technically AIT for me was was uh, was flight school um, and then so I went straight to Fort Rucker Alabama uh, warrant officer school and then after warrant officer school uh, 
what they call Bullock, basic officer leadership course. And then after that, SEER school. Seer, and after SEER school, IERW, which is entry uh, rotary wing. And then you do instruments. Then you do combat training. How long of accumulation is all of that? I was Until you're from basic yeah, to you're at your unit. Like almost two years I was in training before I actually arrived at my unit. Because I, I went to basic in 11 um, and then uh, arrived at my first unit mid-13. Okay. So it was a long time. I had like, you know, you enter your first unit as a, you know, what they call a spot or chief warrant officer one. Looks For those who don't know, that rank looks like a single dot on your chest. Um, so, and I entered my first unit in 2013 and, you know, I've been in the army for two years at this point, but hadn't done anything but training. So it was a kind of a big wake up call at that point. When you get to your unit, everyone can speak to this, even in, you know, in your job, when you're, you're yeah. done with your training or you're done with college or you're done with whatever, and you get to the real world where you're at, a lot of things they tell you, forget how you oh, learned yeah. it there. We're going to teach you a different way. Yeah. I mean, That's- Seems like they can kind of make something like that, huh? Yeah, it's fundamental in the army. I think yeah, <laughs> it's right, like right. A, there's a big disconnect between what you train and what you end up doing. Uh, you know, but it was it was it was productive. You know, it was, it was kind of it was cool as it relates to wine. The cool thing was like I was in Germany, right? So that's what I was going to ask. So this brought you all over the world as far as traveling goes, mm-hmm. and so from you know Alabama, you you start traveling the world. Yeah. And, Maybe we've come now. How did you start traveling the world? When did you run into this wine spark again? Yeah, so I mean, I was, I, when I got stationed in Germany, I was, um, this was right around the time Putin had invaded the Crimea. And so we were spending a lot of time in Eastern Europe, um, in Romania and Bulgaria. And so I was flying a lot out there. Well, for those who don't know, Bulgaria is making some really awesome wine actually now. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, they've actually, there's some really good producers out, out in Bulgaria who are making great Cabernet, uh, amongst other varietals. And uh, I remember being out there with my duffel bag and go. we, we had a couple of days we'd go into the town of Sliven, um, which I'm probably mispronouncing. But uh, I went into there with my du- went in there, got a couple of bottles of wine, came back. Now, of course, as you know, military guy, we were on a C7 or no, we were on a no, C17. 17. Yeah, we were flying out there. And so um, we're flying back on a C17 and, and in the army, what you end up doing is you just take all your bags which are all labeled with your name and you just chuck them into a big pile and then some flight engineer is rigging them riggers put, put them down to where they can actually don't shift on the on the airframe and mess up the cg and so uh, uh i had these two bottles of really nice bulgarian cabernet <laughs> oh, stowed no. into my stowed into my my bag and my duffel bag and i had spent i had spent uh spent quite a bit of time like make securing them to the best of my ability um and uh i was I saw the guy grab my bag and just saw him just, I mean, just heave it right <laughs> into this pile. And I remember just thinking, there's no way those stood up. And sure as heck they did. Like I arrived back in Germany, uh, put it back on my aircraft, my the Blackhawk I was flying in Germany. And, there, and I checked the bag. There's no wet spots in it. I was like, how is that possible? And I came back and Molly and I opened some, you know, Bulgarian Cabernet, probably way too young, but we, we opened Bulgarian Cabernet in Germany that night. So that is so out. funny to me. A side tangent. When I was in basic training, the same experience, <laughs> they grab your shit and they just throw it with yeah. everybody else's and good luck finding it yeah. on a time limit. Yeah. And when I found my bag, I had made a mistake of not putting my hygiene products in their own private bag. <laughs> so when they heaved my bag into the pile and amongst the chaos of getting it back to your bunk bed, my hygiene products exploded in my bag. <laughs> so all my clothes were covered in toothpaste and shampoo and I had a formation to attend to and there was no time to fix yeah. anything. You just went with it. So that is hilarious to me <laughs> that those bottles did not break no, I know. in I was, that bag. 
couldn't believe it. And I, I've had bottles tip over my car and break. You know, like you have it, you have it in a case sitting upright, and the case turns over. That's all it is. Yeah. And there's a bottle that broke in there. Like, how does that? What? <laughs> like, I didn't even wasn't even going that fast, and it broke. But anyway, yeah, I know. So I basically, yeah, I came, I came back. A, a lot of my traveling happened around that time when I was, I was the army was sending me to locations, and just so happened that a lot of the locations they were sending me to were wine regions, um, or, or nearby to wine regions. I mean, you know, Molly and I always talk about the the great travesty is that we didn't spend already any time in uh, wine regions in Germany. Uh, like we were really just right outside. We spent time in Franken, which is outside Würzburg, which is uh, well, Frank is the the the. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Umbabita, the the actual region that's around the town of Würzburg, and Würzburg was only a few minutes away by train. Well, you know, an hour by train. It was a beautiful town, and we used to go spend time out there. But we didn't really go there for wine tasting, even though we were interested in wine. We went there for beer. And the thing that people don't understand, and I always tell people this, like they go, well, "How did you not go visit the Mosul or, or you know, or Schloss Johannesburg or all these other great places in Germany?" I'm like. I think you underestimate two things, how much money I had and how good the beer is. Like people don't understand that like it's it's kind of a euphemism, but German beer in Bavaria, particularly in Bavaria, is basically perfect. Like you can you it's so polished and so perfected over hundreds of years of uh, Das Reinheitsgebot, the German beer purity law and the, the fact that they they've, they've kind of only stuck to these these four ingredients. Which were only three ingredients when they first started doing it, because they didn't know about yeast until Louis Pasteur. So it was originally just three ingredients, and then I guess they had to add the fourth one because it's just oh, we thought it was just magic. But <laughs> so, so in any case, there's it's so good. I I, just, I didn't have a need or the capacity in my liver to also do wine at the time. I was just so focused on beer. Well, you weren't even aware of how popular those reasons were for wine at the time. No, yeah, I know. I you definitely were. knew. I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't nearly as as, as formally educated on, on wine as I am now, but um, but I was very aware of like the, the Mosul and and particularly the the, the Rhine and uh, Schleswig-Holstein and, and uh, those kind of regions in Rheingau. Um, and those places I kind of always thought you're also kind of a victim of proximity. You know, you go, Oh yeah, those regions are right there. We can you go. Mean you have a helicopter though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, spoiler <laughs> aviation and alcohol don't typically mix yeah. well. Uh, that's can't go wine tasting. No, home, huh? Yeah. It's 12 hours bottle of throttles. What we used to always say. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, and, and that they, they, they mean that by effects of the wine too. So if you get like a hangover, you still have 12 hours to from, from the end of the hangover. Uh, but in any case, no, we, uh, we, we kind of, we were a victim of that proximity. It's like Ryan Gal is right there. It's right there. And yet we never went because it's right there. You know, it's like, well, we can go there next time, next time. And then what happens is, you know, what, in the case of what happened with me is we closed our colors for that unit. That unit shut down because of, um, uh, sequestration. And during that, uh, Obama administration, they're pulling a lot of combat aviation brigades off the hook. 12th combat aviation brigade was one of them. And that's who I flew for. And so we closed, cased our colors, and, and I got sent home uh, to my new duty station uh, in California, in Southern California, um, a year earlier. So, and but, but then again, here I am, Southern California, Temecula is an hour and a half away, Paso Robles is about three hours away, and Napa, Sonoma is about six and a half hours away. So I'm, I'm smack dab in another place that, you know, is has great access to a lot of great wine regions. Right. And that's where we started actually getting more into wine when we, when we went there. And so, accumulation of time, did you spend more time in Germany than, than anywhere else, or where was... No, I spent most time in, in Southern California, yeah. Okay. I spent about two, just over two years in Germany, uh, just around three years in Southern California, uh, a couple, a year or so in Alabama, and then a year in Korea. Okay, so briefly, what year did you move to Southern Oregon? 
Uh, we officially moved in Southern Oregon in 2018, uh, but I went off to Korea. Um, so we moved we moved up here, um, and we've been visiting. That's the other thing too. The whole time during this, we've been visiting Southern California or uh, Southern Oregon for for the almost the entirety of me being in in, in the army. I never flew back from Germany to come back to the states. Molly did. I just I love 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 Germany. I had no reason to leave. <laughs> so, um, but uh, but yeah. So we we bought a house here in 2018, and then I went to Korea and then came back and then okay. That was the end, that was the end of my army time. So that was where I was lead with this. Is you got here in 18, you went to Korea. Yeah. Tell me when you first got your your when you first signed up for your first exam. Yeah. As far as <laughs> pursuing the sommelier certifications. Um, Maybe briefly, like why you decided to actually do that, and then when did you sign up for it? Well, I, tell you, I think it's kind of crazy. We've known each other for a couple of years, and I, I don't think I've ever told you the story. Um, but basically, I thought I was going to fly on the way out because here I am. I got this like I, I, it's in my pocket, like a flight license, pilot's license is in my pocket right now. And it's like, why wouldn't you do that, right? And so I always thought I was going to fly. And so I was actually I came up here in 2017, and I think it was July of 17. It might have even been no. It was definitely seventeen. So um, I came up here in July seventeen to kind of get a pulse on what the what the the fly the flying world was out here. Like it, what kind of jobs did I get in Southern Oregon? You know, what it was a the airport f- here. Yeah, what, the airport's a firefighter. What am I going to What am I going to do as a pilot here? And so uh, I was I was walking around. Actually, it's a true story. I, I went down to Ashland. I had little luck at Millionaire over here in uh, in in Medford. So I went down to Ashland. And I went to the small little, you know, commercial airport they have down there. And um, there's a, I can't remember the name of aviation down there, Brom or Brand Aviation. Anyway, I went into what I thought was their flight ops office. And as I walk in the door, this is a true story, you're going to laugh so hard. Uh, when I walk in the door, there's just a bunch of freaking wine bottles everywhere. And two dudes just drinking wine. <laughs> and like, in, a, in a, what I thought was a was a freaking flight ops for, which again, wine and aviation, they don't mix. They didn't right? mix, yeah. So I was, I was like, I was like, hey, I think I'm in the the wrong place. I'm looking for flight ops, and they were like, they look back and they're leaning back in these chairs and they go, flight ops is up the stairs, man. And I was like, and they were like, we sell wine here, and I was like, oh, I used to do that too. And and they leaned forward in their chairs like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I used to work at Allison's of Ashland back a couple years ago before I joined the military. And he goes, what's your name? And I was like, oh, it's Joseph. And he's like. Joseph, we met at Michael Donovan. What? <laughs> what? And then Michael Donovan and Vince Vadrine, who is a winemaker now at Irvine and Roberts, were sitting there chilling, drinking wow. some wine, uh, because that's where their office was before Irvine and Roberts popped up. And they said, hey, we got a grand opening at Irvine and Roberts. It's right up the street. Tomorrow, you should come. It's like, awesome. I'll be there. So I, I didn't even, I didn't even go to the flight ops. Didn't even go to the office. I, I, I went back in my car, <laughs> went, back to, went back to my friend's place that I was staying that day, and I was like, hey, we're going to go do some wine tasting tomorrow. 17th rolls next day rolls around i go out to their to uh, irvine and roberts their grand opening their beautiful new tasting room walk in there i was like hey i'm you know joe shaughnessy and i was like i met i was like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The, the pilot guy and then like and started talking up and basically doug and dion were there and uh, doug came over and they introduced me to him and they were like hey this guy's worked with wine before he's uh, in the army now but he's looking at coming back and moving to southern oregon and doug just told me he's like hey whenever you're Whenever you're done with the military, come by and give me a call. I'll, I'm not sure what kind of job I'll have for you, but I'm sure I could put you to work. And that was for me. That was like, huh, kind of fell in your lap. Yeah, I could like I could just come back and work with wine. Like I didn't think about didn't that. Didn't consider that before. Never thought about it. And so then I was like, well, how do I how do I prove to people? Because I still had like a year and a half left on my my contract with the military. It's like, well, how do I prove to people that I like not just you know 
like I'm not just interested in it, but I really care about it, right? So that's that led me to to was that year and a half like reserve or active that you still owed? That was still active. I owed a year and a half active, two and a half years if you count the MSO or mandatory service obligation. Uh, So one of those years could basically be uh, inactive ready reserve, which I completed after coming back. But but at that point, I basically said. Um, well, okay, I better start studying. And so I started picking up some wine books and, and then I, I enrolled for the following spring before I left for Korea, I enrolled in, uh, the quartermaster sommelier's intro course. And so where did you take that test? I was in Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. So you took your test and then went to Korea. Yeah. I took my first test, my intro course in Las Vegas. I'm still an army guy, right? So no service. I had, I had worked in a restaurant probably about seven or eight years at this point. And, uh, and and I worked in and the restaurants I worked in were all like you know they're casual dining. I, I always wanted to work in fine dining, um, but they're all casual dining stuff. And and I kind of had this in my head that well I would I would come back here. There's a great culinary scene in Ashland for those who had, haven't been up here. Southern Oregon in general, it's got a wonderful culinary scene. So in my head, I was like, well, if that Irvine and Roberts thing falls through, because you know people say a lot of things, right? And a year and a half is a lot of time. And with that falls through, I wanted some backups. So maybe I was working in restaurants. And I kind of thought that idea was really cool. I wanted to do that. I love working in restaurants. And so uh, so I, I enrolled for my my intro, Quartermaster Molly's intro course. I took it in Las Vegas. That was in like March or May or something like that in 2018. And then I flew out to Korea right after that. And uh, while I was in Korea, um, they only – so the Quartermaster Molly's only does one examination every year in Korea for intro, certified, and advanced. Um, and – Lo and behold, here I am in Korea, and they're like, hey, our exam is in November. For the certified. For the certified, and advanced, and intro, but I was going to take the certified. Right. Yeah. They do them all at once, so they can knock them all out. Um, and it's like, huh. And they say, well, Korean residents only. So I sent the court of Master Somalia's my orders that said, hey, I am a resident of Dong Dichong <laughs> up in, uh, near Camp Casey. Uh, I actually think it was Weejumpu at this time because I hadn't moved bases. But anyway, I sent them the thing. I was like, hey, that works. You're living in Korea. You are a resident. You're not, they want to make sure you're not flying from America to take that exam and then flying back, which you know, I was living in Korea for over a year. So, so they, they, they put me on a wait list because it was already full. Almost like two days after they put me on a wait list, they called me up. I was like, hey, exam's open. And man, once that exam opened up, I was like, well, I guess I'm taking it. But I was so unprepared. I had only done a couple of blind tastings ever, and I had, I'm here. I'm on a military base, not really access to a lot of great wine. For those who don't know, Korea Korea puts about like a sixty percent, you know, I wouldn't call it tariff. There's a bunch of different ways these that those funds get distributed amongst the Korean government, but it's very a bottle of Chateau Neuf to Pop is almost always going to be a hundred dollars, regardless of the bottle, regardless of the producer. It's not Chateau Reyes you're buying. It's it's somebody you know. So it's even harder for you to get access to this stuff. Yeah. So the first thing I did when I was in Korea was I I kind of linked up with a wine shop that was in Seoul. It's about an hour and a half train ride commute from from Weejeonbu. but I linked up with a, a guy named there, Scott uh, Scott Lange, and he um. And he became my mentor. He's a small, he was a small aide there, and you know he had taken his exam, failed his first time. Uh, he would take it later on after me and, and pass it, flying colors. But the guy's the guy's brilliant. And he knows a ton about wine, and so he and I, he basically helped kind of guide. He's like, "What are you reading right now?" I was like, "Hey, I'm reading the World Atlas of Wine." He goes, "Stop reading that." He said, like, "You need to read this." And he's kind of he kind of put these these uh, parameters up for me. He's like, hey, this is what they're going to try, try to teach you on. So you need to learn these things. And this is the level. You're going too deep and it'll take you too long. So do this. And he was the first mentor I had that really focused me on taking the exam. So um, I had spent every, I mean, my, my daily routine was, you know, wake up 5.15, PT-ish, you know, I was 
I was a pretty senior officer at the time. I kind of, I was, I was a warrant officer, so I, I kind of, I kind of skipped out on yeah. PT a lot. Um, but you know, PT, uh, go get food, come back home, study for wine, like study wine, a wine region. I'll, hey, today we're doing, you know, Cote de Nuit and, and then, uh, go to work nine to five, come back, taste wine from the region I studied if I could afford it. And I did that every day, every day, weekends, week, weekends down in Seoul, uh, going to taste with Scott and, you know, learn some more there, there. And then I took the exam. Uh, I went to hit the exam in November of, I guess it must've been 18. Yeah. November of 18. And, uh, so both examinations within the same year. Yeah. Both exams the same year from zero to hundred real fast. Right. Yeah. So, and I was one of 12 of 42 to pass. And, uh, and these are a lot of really bright, like on point Korean kids who are really the face of what, what's a really cool scene that's happening in Korea. A really cool restaurant scene, um, and these 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 are the kids that are the, the future of it, right? And those are really smart. They're wicked smart. Uh, just was on an off day. I mean, a lot of those kids had just taken their intro the day prior, and then rolled right into certified because wow. they could they they were taking both that year. So you know, it's, it's a lot taller. Yeah, during my exam, there was a couple of people who were taking the certified the next day mm-hmm. after their intro, um, and and yeah, judgment. Who was ready? Who wasn't? Is for a different conversation. But yeah, I always thought it was fascinating. The people who jumped straight into it, zero to hundred, yeah. knock it out as fast as they can. The people who can accomplish that are, are next level to me. I, I'm very, I'm, I was always very surprised because they have no, they have very little practice with like the grid. They have very little practice with, uh, with a lot of the sort of the level of knowledge that you're expected to know in theory. You know, um, it, it's it's pretty impressive. But um, but yeah, so I pass. I mean, I passed that exam. I you know they they pour they typically pour like Tattinger or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and had a glass of Tattinger. Went, got back on the train. Went back to my my hooch in Camp Casey and had a you know five mile ruck at five in the morning the next day. And I was <laughs> man, you couldn't you couldn't make me upset. I was it was cold in Korean cold Korean winter morning and I'm freezing and I'm out there with a big old smile on my face five in the morning I've got three hours of sleep you know I was like I was stoked because now I've proven something that I could actually do something and I'd proven it for Pete for for what what was going to be a future job you know right but, yeah well you know I want to get into where you are now from that point um, we're gonna take a quick break I think you know later we have some blind tasting coming up um, but I also want to get into um, your you're dabbling in some winemaking for yourself oh, yeah. recently. So I think we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and I'll pick your brain about that for a little bit before we get into the blind tasting. Love it. Um, so stay tuned. Alrighty. So we're back here. Um, we left off talking about your certification um, mm-hmm. when you got certified as a sommelier. Um, but for a brief recap of that, I want to ask you about your your making wine and your yeah. experience with that over the past year and so. But I think to preface this, since your certified examination of being a sommelier, you've also tackled some other endeavors as far as other organizations go and certifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the WSET program, which is the Wine Service Education Trust, if I'm not mistaken, is that what it stands for? Wine Service... Wine Edu- Spirit Education. Wine Spirit yeah. Education Trust. Yeah. They just recently separated the spirits and the wine. Yeah, was and so, a couple you, years ago, yeah. Right. It's pretty recent. But that's a very interesting organization in itself, and I think it offers something that the sommelier doesn't, and vice versa, they're, they're very different. So for someone who... And yourself, you've kind of sped through these examinations. You know, you are WSET three um, mm-hmm. qualified, certified, but you're also pursuing your diploma, mm-hmm. and you're you're going through that process. So, briefly, if you can, in your own words, explain kind of the difference of each for the people 
and I'm bringing this up for people that are brand new to wine and maybe they're confused on which direction they need to start pursuing, would you recommend one over the other and why? Yeah, that's so I think that's, a, that's, that's an awesome question because I think the, um, the greatest difficulty a lot of people have is understanding and comprehending all the different certifications that are out there, like what what they mean, um, what what the applicability of them are, like what or what the applicability of them is. Um, so you know the court is really focused on service, and at the time I was taking those examinations, it was also made popular, of course, by the Sun Films, and and it seemed very accessible for me, and so. For me, it was kind of like I, I, I defaulted there first because I had I had inklings of going back into the restaurant industry in the service industry, which so much about the court examinations is about I mean, a third of the, of the certified exam is about you know service standards and proper champagne and red wine service and decanting and things like that. Um, the WSET or wine, the Wine Spirit Education Trust WSET program is really like a more comprehensive understanding of what it what what happens from vine to glass, to sales, to consumption, right? Like that, the whole process. And so it's less about service and more about the totality of, of winemaking and, and, and sales and service and regions and all those things. When I first met you, actually, one of the things I, I was made abundantly clear when I met you was that I didn't know much about winemaking or um, much about uh, uh, viticulture and enology. I kind of knew, you know, yeah, okay, sunlight, you know, CO2, and the things that vine needs, and like, okay, you know, more sunlight, riper grapes, lower acid, higher alcohol, blah, 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 like the, the real kind of basic stuff. But I didn't know much about, say, biodynamics, or I didn't know much about, um, uh, you know, the actual nuts and bolts of winemaking when it comes to, okay, harvest dates this day, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to pull, I'm going to cold soak maybe for, a little, for, for uh, you know, color extraction. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And, and I didn't know those pieces because I had been so removed from it because my job was flying helicopters in the Army and I'm trying to learn this piece on the fly. Like I could recall my service pass, but I couldn't recall something that I didn't have. And so I kind of, as I moved into the, a, a, a burgeoning wine region like Southern Oregon, and I'm surrounded by Austin Viticult uh, vineyards and, and, and winemakers, I was like, well, I need to start learning that. It, it, made, it just made sense for me to go towards a program that was more catered on the front side of things. And I think that's the best way to put it is like, WSET focuses a lot more on viticulture and enology, uh, you know, growing grapes and making wine than the quartermaster sommeliers. Quartermaster Sommeliers focuses more on producers, regions, uh, service standards. So it's like a front and back half of the process of grape, of, of grape to glass, so to speak. You know, right? And I think I, I kind of took the same path as you. I came mm -hmm. from a restaurant background. I learned the Sommelier. I saw the Somme series. I thought that's what it yeah. was to be someone who knew wine. But I think to your point, you learn more about wine making, grape growing, the nuts and bolts through the WSET program. Yeah. So with that being said, I think. For me, maybe going back in time, it would have helped me learning WSET, whatever level, and then going to the sommelier exam yeah. would give me a better foundation of knowledge when I'm doing my service portion and getting quizzed on questions and yada yada. Yeah. Um, would you say the same? If someone was brand new to the wine game and wanted to learn one before the other? Well, right now, I tend to I tend to deviate towards WSET predominantly because of the accessibility of examinations. The biggest the biggest hamstring right now from and I'm I'm speaking as somebody not beholden to any role in the court of Master Sommelier, so understand that this is a opinion of mine and you know biased though it may be. Um, 
it's not biased in the regard of being somehow like employed by the court. But my opinion of the court right now is that they are hamstringed by the fact that they can only do so many examinations. And for those who don't understand, they can only do so many examinations because all the examinations from intro, certified, advanced, and, and master are all proctored by master sommeliers. So there's, and for those who don't know, there's only about 320 something master sommeliers. So when you have tens of thousands of people wanting to take this exam from all across the world, but you only have 300 people able to proctor them and then slash that about in half from master sommeliers who have other jobs and roles and can't proctor exams, you have people who are basically just flying around the country or countries in the case of like, you know, Kim Moon Kim, for example, a master sommelier, great guy. And he flies to Korea every year to teach that exam. He was the person who certified me um, in, in South Korea. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's tricky. So WSET, however, has a ton of APP or approved partners that can teach these examinations that can, that can educate people. They have a better infrastructure set up to, to teach at this point, especially right now with COVID. Like I've been taking my diploma examination. I know you guys took your, your WSET three during COVID. I took my diploma, one of my examinations for diploma during COVID. I also took my uh, wine Scholars Guild, uh, French Wine Scholar, we'll t talk about that, I guess, later. But uh, basically, there's more set up for COVID protocols, too, because the service piece is missing, right? So you're able to just take an exam, which is easier to administer than if I have to do proper table-side service. So, right. yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, and, and so I ask all this in, in, in build-up for, you know, you have all this experience. You have experience in the WSEP program, experience on waiting tables in restaurants and sommelier. You have the French wine scholar behind your background. You also have the discipline of the military behind your background of even maybe how you learn wine because you started learning wine while you were in the military. Yeah. So I can only imagine that you adopted these, these disciplines of learning and practicing stuff. You know, <laughs> it is embedded in you now. And, well, you know, I would, I would caution you on the word of discipline with a, with a pilot boy like me <laughs> because we're not very disciplined. I mean, we are doing stuff like I read regulations and I, you know, stayed by the rules, but you know. The slogan was break the rules yeah, responsibly. Yeah, break them responsibly and, and you know, like, and hopefully don't break the aircraft. But, um, but yeah, there's definitely, I have some cool pictures of, of, of um, you know, you know, maybe, maybe I was a little bit low. I don't know, by, you know, you just have to fly 500 feet above the ground level in most places, but maybe I was a couple hundred feet off. I don't know. Maybe 400 to 50 feet, 450 feet, something like that. I don't know. Maybe. I can't tell. I, I wasn't looking at my radar altimeter. No, but seriously, I, I the, the, as far as discipline, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, naturally in the, in the military is going to teach you some level of organization and regiment and process and those kind of things. And I think, I think both of us, I think, you know, that's one thing that, when I first met you, I was like, oh, man, military guy. Like, the way he kind of sees things makes sense to me. And uh, I also think that's one reason why we were both successful, for example, with the court examination on our first try. Because so much of that is process, is order, and, like, attention to detail. And it, that it's a part of a restaurant industry that the best – think of the best restaurant service you've ever had. Though the, the attention to detail is probably the thing that separated it from the other experiences – you know, was it synchronized service or was it, you know, just something down to the to to the way the logo on the glass was facing you? You know, the logo on your wine glass of the of the restaurant name was facing you. You know, those those details, I think so many people take it for granted. But when when you uh, when you've been in the military and you, you do things that are very focused, very specific, people like you and I, I think have natural disposition towards understanding that. And so when it comes to taking an exam to be tested on your attention to detail, it, it's, it's a great, 
you know, advantage that we had, I think, over a lot of other folks. And at least I'm not, I'm not, I don't, again, I don't take it for granted. I think, I think one of the bigger reasons I passed was the first try was one luck, two mentorship, and then three just diligence and, and due diligence. So that, but that third one was definitely behind the luck and mentorship piece mm-hmm. for me. Right, right. Luck always has a, a yeah. nice hand of cards on the table. I mean, they poured cab. I'm pretty sure they poured cab in my flight. I mean, come on. I'm gonna, I, I called it, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they poured cab. So yeah, yeah. It was they don't tell you afterwards what your wines were, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but if you can find the right, you know, little whispering bird, you yeah. can get some info. Yeah. But, you know, the, that's funny because the things that you, you're taught, while you're being taught them, you may hate them. You know, the discipline and the rigorous structure of things, but... I've come to love them afterwards and it's shaped who I am as far as I am the person in the tasting room that I will make sure the glass logo is facing yeah. you. And other people look at me like I'm psycho. But like everything now has to be dress right, dress for me. Yep. It has to be just how it has to be. And But I kind of like it these days and it kind of pays off in the attention to detail in some sense. I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, so thinking about that context, as far as you making your own wine, yeah. usually people don't have both experiences one before the other, they just dive into one channel and they kind of dig themselves a nice rivet in there. But you having experience of these organizations and, and you know, a format and structure of how you taste wine, how you look at wine, how you interpret and express wine, when you go to making wine, you're making, um, you know, uh, I would like you to say, what, what you're making a red wine from last year mm-hmm. and this year you plan on making some white wine? Yeah, so last year for 2020, I'm making uh, Merlot from Lane Vineyard and then this year, uh, Chardonnay from Lane Vineyard as well, and uh, I'll talk more about the wine in a second. But I think going into the lead into that question was more like I was I was really focused when I came back here. I, let, me, let me go back when I came back here, and I the first place I went per that conversation we just had was to Irvine Roberts, and they offered me a job, or they they offered me a job eventually that I I, I just had a better offer, and I regretfully well not regretfully because it led me to where I am now, but. I had to uh, I had to turn it down because a better offer made more money and it was more local. Um, but when in that in the interview with Irvine and Roberts, um, they asked me, well, "What do you want to do with wine?" And I remember being like, "Uh, what like all of it? Like, can I, can I just do all of it?" And that's in my head. That's kind of like what I thought. I, was, I, I told him. I, I told Vince. I remember saying like, "I don't know if I want to make wine. I don't know if I wanted to. I, I, I don't know if I just want to serve wine. I don't know if I want to just be a, a managing a tasting room or selling selling wine. I don't know." I kind of think I want to do all of it, and I think and and the offer that was at the time given to me at, at Irvine was well, okay. Well, how about during the busy season you're working the tasting room, and then you know during the off season you help with the harvest and helping the in the cellar. I thought that was great. It, it, it was I almost took it. Like I mean, it was like it came down to a, a job that came up at Lithia, which is actually how I met end up meeting you. Um, that was just a better offer, and um, but yeah. So so as it pertains to my winemaking now, I'm in the position where. Um, I'm able to, you know, save up a little bit and fork over those savings to, to buy some fruit. And then the rest of the savings go into, uh, uh, you know, help from barrel 42 and, and those folks at Brian and her and Herb and Nicole helping me kind of get my head on straight about winemaking. But it also pertains back to the W set thing, right? Like the whole reason I took W set was to learn more about the front end of winemaking. As I took the W set, as I enrolled for the W set diploma, the first test, you, the first examinations you go through is D one or module one, which is wine production, which is wine making, right? So, I, at the time I was taking this wine production course and diploma, I'm also, you know, 
pick harvesting my grapes and I'm putting them through the sorter and I'm like, you know, and I'm deciding to 100% crush and what barrel uses am I using, second use, once use for those who want to know. Uh, and, you know, all those things like I'm, 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 I'm learning it and then I'm being tested on it after the fact. So it just kind of made sense at the time. So are you thinking about those decisions? It's hard to see in retrospect for something you haven't done, but if it would have went the other path, you think yeah. now you're you're more conscious of of your winemaking decisions based on your experience of these certifications? Yeah, learning absolutely. how people make wine with what techniques and which ones yeah. you want to implement with your fruit. I mean, like resounding yes, yeah, like like I everyone's got their preferences, and I have a, I have a lot of opinions as you certainly know on wine, but. Um, uh, you know the what I'm making. There's a reason I'm making Merlot first, right? Like it's funny because it won't be released first. But it, it, there, the reason I made Merlot first is because uh, it, it is it is such an amazing grape that people just scoff over, and you know they scoff over it because of the '90s glut of Merlot and Central Valley Merlot that was being pumped out at six dollars a bottle and is garbage, and people drank a lot of it, and then that influenced a, a movie producer somewhere who wrote who made Sideways, and then they dog on Merlot and they have a classic line, "I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot," and then lo and behold, everybody missed the punchline that he loves Cheval Blanc, 1947 Cheval Blanc, if I believe, and that's. Fucking Merlot, right? So like that, the people miss that last piece, right? So what happens? Oh, Merlot's, Merlot Merlot uh, sales tank and Pinot goes through the freaking roof and everyone. So anyway, leading down to the opinion path, but effectively, I I have this feeling that that Merlot's an it's just an, it's not a feeling, it's just truth that Merlot's an incredibly important grape, and that Lane Vineyard uh, where I uh, was able really, it's, I, it's one thing to say decided to, it's a different thing to say am able to purchase right like lane vineyard i feel like in 20 years would be a place that if i can still buy fruit from them i'm i'm either really successful or or i'm really successful because that place is going to get it's going to get gobbled up from from people who are wanting to buy the, some of the best fruit out there that's on the market um for those who don't know lane vineyard he purchased he he planted in 75 and a lot most of his vines in 75 a good portion of his vines though irrigated or dry farmed because they're right next to this little creek bed and the water table is relatively um, shallow. So they're dry farmed. They're own rooted. So they're not on any rootstock or anything like that. They're on all of it is vinifera. The, the trunks are the size of my leg, which I'm, you know, I'm a skinny guy, but that's still pretty impressive. Uh, and so, um, and, and they're in there and the fruit's fantastic. It, it, it demonstrates excellent acid always. And, and in the words, not to to paraphrase Brian Gruber, who, who's purchased and made a lot of fruit out of Lane, they used to have problems with it. They said, and, and before climate change, they used to be like, man, how do we deacidify this? It's just the pHs are too low. But now they're looking at it like it's perfect. Fruit's getting perfectly ripe because of the increases in temperature, but in the acid's coming down from that, and it's right where you want it to be, that fresh acid, great fruit concentration, own-rooted, dry-farmed. You know, live certified because it's got all the, the hallmarks of a good place. Well, on top of that, can you do you know the elevation? Yeah, sixteen hundred to seventeen hundred. Some of the highest slopes in the Applegate. Yep. So and you get which, a big diurnal. You, you yep. get the like I said, you're, you're harboring all the acid, but a lot of the challenges for people that can harbor your acid is you, you still struggle developing flavor. Yep. But you're making it seem like you know, and you've made two years of fruit now almost with this. Like you're well, starting to learn that vineyard a little bit more. You yeah. can develop flavors at that altitude. With harboring your acid, you make a balanced wine. Yeah, now so I'll be making my second year this year. But you're 100 percent right. Like the the flavor is still there, so you're still getting to phenolic ripeness because it can hang for longer. 
and the acids coming down from that because their temperatures are warmer. And so you're now, whereas before it was probably too lean and too tart, now it's getting right where that, in that sweet spot. Mm. And vineyard practices also have increased. I mean, Applegate Vineyard Management's out there doing that, Herb Quaddy and all the, all the great things he does for the valley. And it's funny, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, you mentioned one of the highest places in the Applegate. We say that kind of thing, like down here, it's like, oh, it's one of the highest elevations in the Applegate without acknowledging that the Applegate is one of the highest elevation, elevation AVAs in Oregon. Right. Like, so when we talk about like Willamette Valley, high elevation Willamette Valley is 700 feet. I, you know, Applegate's like high elevations, like You're over that, double that, uh, yeah, double that, triple that maybe even, you know, and there's a couple of vineyards down in the Rogue, in Southern Rogue that are 2,100 feet. So we're... we're but the gonna, average elevation of the Rogue would be lower than the average elevation maybe of the Applegate. Yeah, I think so. Because, yeah, um, I, 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 I haven't done the numbers, but I'd, I'd be surprised if... if that was not true because mm-hmm. because so much is on that Rogue Valley, the Bear Creek Valley, for example, right. where it's all it's all down. Uh, we're, we're kind of speaking in colloquialisms, but effectively, the I five corridor is in this in this basin, and a lot of the vineyards are right off the I five corridor, very similar to like the Napa Valley floor versus say uh, Spring Mountain or or Atlas Peak or something like that. Yeah, right. Well, you know, maybe I can ask because we do have a blind tasting coming up, and and to keep this in a timely fashion. Well, we'll get to that, but I do want to end on, you know, if you can tell the people, maybe those of us that are in the area that maybe have access, if you plan on selling any of your wines, yeah. um, what kind of Merlot and Chardonnay are you planning on making, and when can we kind of expect these to maybe be available? Oh, man, you're just like softballing me in for a plug for my brand. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love it. <laughs> so I actually do have a brand name and all that stuff already already set up. If you but want I'm, to save any of that, don't feel free to divulge yeah. too much. Yeah, no worries. I, 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 I will save the brand name, even though I have like domain names and stuff, just because it's not licensed yet. And I don't want anybody to steal it because it's really great. And once once it lands, you'll be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. So style. I'll answer the stylistic question first. For Merlot, um, I, I'll go and be completely candid that the um, the inspirations for this Merlot uh, were and like let's be real. I'm not trying to emulate anything, but I'm trying to create my interpretation of wines that stuck with me in my memory, right? Like wines that when I look back are like, man, that was freaking awesome. Like what, what, I, what were they doing? And one of those wines is a 1995 Frog's Leap Merlot uh, from Napa Valley. And uh, John Williams and uh, does just remarkable things. And for those who don't know Frog's Leap, but if you next to me in Napa Valley, you just have to go there. They're, they're amazing. Um, and, uh, it was poured for me, uh, very graciously by, uh, Jonah Beer, who's their now vice president and, um, and John Williams. And they, and it was, you know, $45 bottle of Merlot that was the best wine I had tasted okay. in all of 2019. Like of all the wines I tasted in 19, that was it. That's the wine, man. That was there awesome. was some Dom P in that 2019 vintage yep. that he was so kindly to provide. Yeah, <laughs> Dom P. You always give Tom Dom P when someone passes their certified <laughs> exam. That's that's my rule, man. Um, but no, yeah, it, it was it was remarkable. And I'd had I'd had some kind of like I had an 89 Madeira that year, but uh, uh, Sersal Madeira that was beautiful. I had lots of really. I had a Corton. Uh, no, a uh, um, oh shoot. Uh, Montachet, Batard Montachet, mm-hmm. uh, Grand Cru. I, I mean, I, I had I had freaking sock Chateau de Kim 2001 that year. Like, I had some really heavy hitter wines. Um, pretty sure that was a year. Anyway, I had heavy hitter wines that year, but a forty dollar bottle, well aged, 1995 Frogsley Merlot. So that was the, that was a bottle that showed me that one that Merlot's got this this life and this vitality to it, and then two was the Lane Vineyard 2015 Lane Vineyard Merlot from uh which is made by barrel 42 but is as the lane family's uh label and that should be the potential of lane vineyard 
And I actually blind tasted that next to Stag's Leap Merlot. Mm. That's Stag's is. So it's S-T-A-G-S apostrophe, not apostrophe S. Um, so Stag's Leap's uh, Merlot, which they make excellent Merlot. And I blind tasted the same vintage. And I was like, this this one here on the left, that's freaking awesome. I knew they were both Merlot. I was like, this is freaking awesome. And so was, for yours, I mean, you're not necessarily trying to rip someone's face off with your Merlot, mm-hmm. but you want it to be, uh, maybe you could... How long do you plan on someone should age that wine by the time you die? You make well, more strain Merlot or what? what? It's gonna be it's gonna be bigger, and that wasn't that was more basically what wine nature gave me, right? So we had for those who don't know the twenty twenty vintage in Southern Oregon, things were rocketing off. Uh, their the P, the uh, bricks were, were escalating pretty quickly. We had the fires in September on September eighth that uh, were just devastating to the community. Uh, for the grapes, they, the grapes kind of went into like a hibernation mode. Uh, all our bricks stopped movement for almost the whole week of those fires and that smoke out there. They couldn't get any real sunlight or it just wouldn't, they wouldn't photosynthesize. And then after the fires were cleared up or after the smoke was cleared up, um, they, uh, they shot off. I mean, they went, we, I went from 22.5 bricks to 24.5 bricks in like six days. And so I couldn't pick it fast enough for, I couldn't get a pick team myself included there fast enough before, I was I was way over the bricks that I wanted to be. I wanted to be at twenty three two or so. Um, that would translate to about thirteen percent wine. So my wine's probably gonna be around. Four, I, I have to double check it. It's probably around fourteen percent alcohol, which is a bit heavier than what I wanted to be. So what I did on to, to adjust for that was instead of doing like whole berry fermentations, distemmed but whole berry. I went complete crush. So I was like, well, if I'm gonna have high alcohol, I'm gonna have high tannins. Like that's how I'm gonna. I'm not gonna placate. Uh, Ma Nature gave me high alcohol this year, so we're going to make, you know, right bank. We're going to go big, man. So crushed all the wine, uh, or, or sorted, uh, and then uh, destemmed, sorted, uh, crushed all 100%. Uh, and then and then after fermentation, I left it on the skins. Uh, the, cap, the cap of the fermentation sank for about five days. I still left it on. Uh, not too long of an extended. I'm not like this Barolo 45-day kind of craziness. I'm not that ballsy. Um, and so uh, I pressed it off um, uh, shortly thereafter. And, uh, you know, so far, tasting it right now, the craziest thing is the pH, man. Yeah. It's like uh, 3.4. to three, Yeah, dude, 3.4 to 3.6 pre-mallow. So before malolactic fermentation, it was, it was really high acid. Um, and it's it, that mallow is done. Acid subsided. I don't know what the pH is at now. I've done the measurements on it, but it's tasting tasting really good. Uh, I use it a once use and a twice use barrel, so I want some presence of oak dictated on the wine, roughly 25-30 percent from the from the math. Uh, and it's going to be it's good. So it's going to be kind of more uh, of a my goal is balance, always balance structurally speaking. And then the the phenolics, I don't I can't I don't worry about those because that's the vineyard. The vineyard gives that to me. The fruit gives that to me. The viticulture gives that to me. All I worry about is is the fermentation process and the balance and the structure. If you're giving me high alcohol, I gotta match that with tannins. If yeah. you know, I gotta I gotta balance that out. If your alcohol is lower, cool, I can go something lighter and fresher. Um, you know, when it comes to the Chardonnay, uh, the Chardonnay is coming from Lane Vineyard this year too, which is perfect because acid, acid, acid. That's my point with this, you know, Lane Vineyard spiel. And so the Lane Vineyard Chardonnay, I'm doing. I'm actually purchasing a, a new barrel, which is. An, ex- an experience uh, and if by the way for those who out there who, who are like who love certain wines and they're like oh why is it so expensive if it's got a new barrel on it that's that's an easy like addition of three dollars bottle right like it's so so expensive so i mean i'm, I'm gonna have uh, my wine's gonna be in two two barrels or so right but one of those barrels is totally new um and so you're talking about 1200 bucks right 
and it's a lot of money to recoup. You have to recoup at the point of sale. But the, uh, I'm without, I won't go into the details, but effectively it won't be a 50% uh, new oak wine. It'll be more like 30, 40% because I'm going to buy a third barrel and racking. And anyway, won't go into the details. But um, effectively, I'm looking for something that's got oak. It's got that presence, that toastiness, baking spice, clove from a very good cooper. Um, and then I want acid. So what the whole thing I think people mess up with Chardonnay is people don't think about Chardonnay is a neutral grape variety. It doesn't have a lot of aromas. Not intrinsically. It's not Muscat. It's not Gewurztraminer. You know, it's not Viognier, Vermentino. It's 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 got a lot of just blank slate that the winemaker kind of mess around with, which is why I kind of want to cut my teeth on it early because it kind of will show whether or not I'm in the right. If I'm doing, am I doing the right thing or not? You know. So the goal with that Chardonnay is going to be a supple body from malolactic fermentation, from oak, from that roundness, from lees contact. But then this piercing sort of lance of, of acid driving down the middle. I think that is is key. I want to pick it really early. I'll, that you know, I want to pick it right around twenty two nine ish bricks, something like that. Try to keep it around twelve point five to thirteen point two alcohol is the goal. So it's light, it's fresh, but it's got this body to it, right? The inspirations for that are just all over the Willamette Valley, all over. Oregon. I mean, I think Oregon Chardonnay is awesome. That, that's kind of a tightrope to walk for an extent of, of even what people want to drink and what you want to make is do you yeah. want to have an opulent Chardonnay? Do you want to have a lean Chardonnay? What kind of Chardonnay do you want to make? And, yeah. and it seems like you've got your, your intentions there, which which I can't wait to try. I've only got to try your Merlot yeah. and it was during fermentation. Um, so I would love to try it again afterwards. But just for, for the sake of anybody listening and curious about the wines that Joseph's making... Please um, check him out on his social media. You know, he's got the, the Southern Oregon Psalm is his Instagram account. He's posted grapes of his Merlot, pictures of his Merlot grapes. And, you know, he'll kind of keep you in the loop as far as when you can expect to, to be, you know, have that wine available to yeah, you. Yeah, probably this vintage, the, the Chardonnay from this vintage will probably be 2024. Uh, the Merlot from last vintage, 2025. Your previous questions about aging, that's kind of... You'll be able to, both these wines will probably age and drink right off the bat, either one you want to do. If you want to age it, it'll probably work just fine. It, it, you know, I, I say probably only because nothing's certain, but it, it, everything, all my indications are showing that this is going to be something you could set down, but it's going to be, it's going to have enough age in the bottle and age in the oak to, to be ready to drink as soon as it's upon purchased release. upon release. Yeah. So, and that's, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those things I'm learning what it's like to be quote unquote wine rich. All my money's in barrels and wine and <laughs> not in an account somewhere. So that's kind of interesting, but it's, I'm really excited about it. They are, they're, they're going to be a lot of fun. The, the big point of a lot of my brand, I, I won't stick with just Lane Vineyard. I, my goal is with a lot of the brand is to, is to buy fruit from the best the, what i think to be the best best vineyards in this area in the rogue and applegate valley so my goal is to purchase fruit and release wine from what i think is the best vineyards in this area and and as, as a way of doing that to advertise a little bit about southern oregon and the wines that are coming out of here and the potentiality for them because right. i think just people i think people are constantly just not seeing you know what's what's here and it's you know there's a lot of questions there we can go down that rabbit hole about distribution and and the hiccups that we have with that. But um, I think ultimately Southern Oregon's making some awesome fruit and, and you know, if you come down this area you can you can see for yourself. Yeah, I think it's hundred percent right. You know, Willamette Valley takes the cake on a lot of the notoriety, but we have a, a crazy diverse climate here in Southern Oregon that we can grow just about anything we want and yep. make an expression that, that expresses Southern Oregon on it. And and I think just listening to Joseph talk about his experience with with tasting wine, learning wine, talking about wine to then transforming that to making wine 
Um, this would be really interesting. I would love to do a whole another episode picking your brain about what you're doing, how you're doing it, with winemaking, going in depth with that and tasting. But um, I think taking what we've heard now from him, it's going to be really exciting to see how he does his blind tasting coming up with, with yeah. the wine that's presented to him. Um, but again, I would love to do a, a whole another episode diving into your winemaking. I'm out of practice, man. I'm out of practice. It's okay. <laughs> we shouldn't have too many curveballs coming up. Um, but this will be really fun. We'll, we'll take a short break, and then we'll get into some blind tasting and, and see kind of how we do this and why it's even important to do such a thing. Um, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right, so we've got some wines in front of us, um, how we're going to do this. Uh, we kind of will probably mix the sommelier grid and the WSET grid here, um, but we're going to walk you through how we taste wines and why it's kind of important to, to know how to do such a thing. Joseph brought me a white wine uh, that I'm going to blind first, and then I have a red wine for him to blind, and we're going to kind of see this how this goes. Um, I'll start here with the white wine. Um, I'm just going to try to explain my thought process as it goes through, and we'll see... Um, Chime in at any point if you want, Joseph. Yeah, if, if I'm going way off track or, or if you, you know you agree with anything, feel free. Now you're going to home run this. So looking at the wine, um, when you look at the wine, that could tell you a couple things about the region or the climate. Also, certain grapes have tendencies to go to certain colors. This is pretty yellow to me. Lemon or yellow, however you want to call that. It's not straw or white or too clear. Um, and it doesn't look too dark. I've got a little white piece of paper in front of me to, to help me out here. Um, but because of it's yellow, gold, lemon, uh, it leads me to a certain couple directions. I won't make an assumption yet until I smell it, um, but my mind already starts working just based off the look. The glass isn't really helping me out as far as legs go, um, but that's okay. Smelling the wine, um, I'm just going to start riffing off here. You get a lot of lemon, lemon like zest and citrus, lemon peel like tart lemon, lemon tarts and lemon, like not quite pie or meringue, but it's some kind of like tart lemon. There's definitely pear. It's like fresh pear. Not quite floral, but there's something peeking through there. Yeah, I'm sticking with the citrus. Now, when you go down this grid and you have a couple things to choose from, you have a, they call it the lexicon of flavors. Um, there's green fruits and citrus fruits, stone fruits, tropical, red, black. There's herbaceousness. There's a bunch of things you can choose from. And it's all kind of an educated guess. Um, I'm living in like citrus and maybe some stone fruits here. I don't get too much tropical. I don't get too much dried fruit or cooked fruit or too many florals. So it kind of, I'm leaning towards a couple different directions here. One thing that jumps out to me is Chardonnay. Another thing that jumps out to me, possibly, I, I don't know what he's trying to do to me here, but this could be some Chenin Blanc. I'm not sure. There's a couple of grapes that I'm pretty inexperienced with, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. What's funny is I, I've had this wine before, and it's a little bit more muted than it was the last time I had it. Like well, Before, it, it definitely like jumped out of the glass more, and I'm not going to criticize your uh, polishing of the, of the glasses or anything, but for some reason, <laughs> I, I opened this opened this recently, but for some reason, it's not really as aromatic as I thought it was going to be. I'm used to writing all these notes down as I do this, and I'm not doing that right now. I'm just going to try to freestyle it, so pardon me. But I'm getting, like I said, on when you taste the wine, you're kind of confirming what you smelled is still there, or if it's changed on you or not, and it's pretty consistent under the palate. 
It's got medium, medium plus acidity, um, tart. It's got lemon. It's got grapefruit, not quite to the lime. Do you think the quality of the fruit changes at all from nose to palate? I.e., does it go from ripe to tart yeah, or tart to ripe? I think it's a little bit more ripe yeah. on the palate. Usually it goes the other way for me. It gets tart when you have the acid present, but it's a very kind of round mouthfeel. And it's kind of a full mid-palate. It's not a heavy wine, but it's definitely it's like round. And it's lifted by the acid. Um, I don't... I get a little bit of, of leaves in here, whether it's not quite barrel, but it is something, I don't think it spent time in tank. I think this was a wine that spent a little bit of time in oak. Get a little touch of the oak, the oak, you know, to me shown in the leaves, a little, not quite vanilla or like baking spices, but I still get a little richness that you can't really accomplish through tank that often. So you're, you're not thinking necessarily a lot of new oak, but perhaps just- Yeah, I think some mature oak. oaks in there, you know, whether it be three or five years. It could be pretty different on the, the yeah. year of the oak, but mature oak is what I'll say. Yeah, I don't have a crazy ton to say about the palate, but it's all primary fruit with a little bit of secondary notes coming mm -hmm. through. Primary, as I listed before, but secondary being a little bit of oak and leaves and winemaker techniques used in that. And all in all, I'm going to say, I'm just going to go with the safe bet here, and possibly a Chardonnay from uh, from the New World. And let me think about this. Yes, the New World Chardonnay, not from a producer, not using a whole lot of oak. <clears throat> That's me reading back your notes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think this is, um, I'm, I'm going to stick with... Oregon Chardonnay on the guess here. What's the year? 2017. Man, look at this guy go. 2017 Winderly Chardonnay. Oh, from, this is an Oregon From Willamette Valley. Yeah, so what a rock star move, man. I gotta, this I, doesn't I, happen often. Man, now I'm not. I can't wait to swing and miss on mine. It's going to be awesome. No, yeah, I, I picked this wine up. Uh, I was just up in the Willamette Valley, um, and I picked it up because, well, I like Chardonnay a lot, and I like, I think Willamette Valley Chardonnay is actually extremely underrated. Um, you know, people always think Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, um, but there's more and more producers making some excellent, excellent Chardonnay there. One thing I, I didn't hear you say, but I, the, is the minerality piece of this is, is really fresh. It's like real limestone-y, I mean, jory kind of soil is really what it is, but really pretty wine. And of course, Winterly's biodynamic um, and uh, uh, very, you know, they this has only about 8 to 10% new French, so you're, you're, you're pretty spot on with your with your wood calls, in fact, all your calls, that's high bar for me. This to... is a really great wine, and I'm, I'm glad that you picked this wine. I'm even more glad that I got it right. There was a lot of nerves involved with there. And you'll notice when you do a lot of blind tastings, like some things, when, when you speak your mind, you'll forget a lot of things. Um, you know, I haven't used this greater blind tasted formally in a while, so there's a lot of things that I didn't say and that I may have forgot. So that's why the freestyle kind of comes in, but I felt like this wine was expressing itself pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, as some Chardonnay. I, I picked the organ because it wasn't stewed. It wasn't overly yeah, ripe. It yeah. wasn't really influenced by the oak. And like you said, the acidity, I didn't mention that much, but it really lifted that wine up. 
And that's to me that organ touch that has more than Washington and California is that. Lit. Yeah, there's like I think this is at I want to say this is like thirteen point. Well, it's lower alcohol too. Um, In the front. Uh, where am I at here? Yeah, not even thirteen. It's twelve point eight. Yeah, twelve point eight percent alcohol. The acid's ripping on it, and it's got that really cool limestone, um, like that that sort of touch of uh, of of earthy minerality to it that comes in the mid palate. It's a really pretty wine, and, and I mean, to me, this is a, like this is classic. Like, if there, if you're gonna put typicity to Oregon Chardonnay, this is kind of what my mind goes to. And obviously, that's a conversation for another day whether one would want to do that and and, and homogenize organized Chard, uh, Oregon Chardonnay. But uh, but seriously, good wine from a for an awesome producer who who's extremely focused, obviously, on stewardship of the earth and stewardship of their vineyard, um, but also uh, their staff and personnel there are just incredible. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, wines that they make come from 45 year old, you know, 40 year old, uh, vines. Now I'm not sure about the Chardonnay. I think the Chardonnay is very newly planted, but a lot of their Pinot Noir that they make from their, uh, from nearby vineyards, they're some of the oldest vines that have been planted in the Lima Valley. So, uh, some of which are, there, are on their own roots too, the Vitis Minifera roots. So, right. um, yeah, it's a really cool, really cool producer. Highly recommend. Their site is beautiful. And yeah. I know you've been there before, right? Yeah. I was just there like literally a few days ago. It was gorgeous. The, I was there this past vintage during harvest, and and it was a very interesting year with the smoke cover and how small their bunches were of yeah. Pinot Noir. They were very small, but they're yeah. still very optimistic, and the flavor and everything was was great for those grapes. But working in Southern Oregon, when we see a lot of big grapes and big clusters, yeah. when you go up north, it's kind of pretty different aesthetically. Yeah, and, and the the nothing too about their vineyards is the steep, it's just so steep, like it it drops off. I mean it. It looks like you're staring down a mountain. You know, when I went up there, it was actually relatively early in the morning. It was like 10 or so o'clock. And, uh, you know, fog is, is like right below the vineyard site. And so it's just one of those beautiful pictures. I'll, I have it on my phone, too. I'll send it over to you. But uh, just a gorgeous shot. And uh, it's just really pretty. It's a really pretty location. And, you know, good wine loves a view. So Yeah, great wine. If anybody doesn't know the, the vineyard and winery, it's Winderley. It's W-I-N-D-E-R-L-E-A. Check them out. Follow them on social media. They do a lot of fun stuff. They're biodynamic. They they work with clay in fermentation experiments and, and Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Um, really fun. Just great wine. Um, thank you for sharing that wine with oh, me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we're going to get on to the red wine now. All right. So the red wine for Joseph, um, it's... It's all up to him for this. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're going to give me any clues. <laughs> I could use clues. So it's been a while since I've done an actual proper blind tasting, so this will be a lot of fun. Um, so I, I, my, my method of tasting, I should just kind of tell everybody, is, is combination of the cork, combination of W-set, and then a bunch of like weird tips and tricks that I just sort of picked up uh, over, well, from a lot of people who know more about this craft than I do. And I would just like to say, too, you know, when it comes to blind tasting, I think, um, I think a lot of us focus on, like, it in the professional sphere as like I am a wine professional therefore I blind taste but it's an incredibly applicable skill for consumers um, uh, the average consumer namely because it removes all biases right like if I don't know if, if I'm tasting a wine if a friend's pour me a wine I have no idea what it is the only thing that I can judge off of is what's in the glass and I think that's that's super important because if you were to lay down i.e. the Winderly in front of me and I, I drink it, I'm automatically in a, in a cognitive bias of like, oh, I like that producer, I know that producer, therefore, no matter how good or bad the wine is, I'm going to say it's probably good because I like them. 
So, in any case, uh, onto the warrant itself. Um, well, Joseph is very he, he's very good at explaining things compared to me, and so I'm very excited to hear his thought process as he goes through this. That's a very nice way of saying I'm long-winded. <laughs> All right, so um, so we have a red wine. It's ruby. Um, it, it it does look like this is going to be. I mean, I can see my hands, and my fingers through it, but it doesn't necessarily look like it's a thin-skinned varietal. It looks like it's just been lightly extracted. So um, it does leave just the slightest bit of staining on the glass, um, which again can kind of tell me in the camp that I'm looking at. Am I looking at a thin skin or thick skin varietal? I'm going to kind of assess those different wines in a red wine a different way. Um, I see just the slightest bit of staining, so I'm kind of leaning into the the a thicker wine, uh, grape varietals, so something more in the Rhone or Burgundy category, or Rhone or Bordeaux, excuse me, category, as opposed to like a Burgundy or Pinot Noir or Sangiovese or or Nebbiolo, but we'll see. Um, and then I can't really tell as far as the viscosity. It does, well, it's starting to show up now, and they're pretty slow moving. Something tells me this has probably got a decent amount of alcohol to it. Um, and overall, I mean, not much bricking, so it, I don't think there's too much age in this wine. Uh, probably about four or five years, just judging from the color. Um, so, yeah, let's give it a whiff, man. Wow, that smells good. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I usually get fruit first on a lot of wines, but this is definitely giving me some herbaceousness and some what's probably methopyrazines or, or sort of green bell peppery, olive-y kind of character. But I've been notorious for confusing that with uh, with pepper and peppercorn and, you know, it's more of the Rhone category. So let's go back to the fruit because that's something I can smell. Um, it's it's a bit fuller, riper fruit, plumier, darker fruit. Some red fruits are in there as well, too. So we're in the combination here of like sort of blackberry plum with uh, some like dark red cherries. Almost like, and the fruit's really, it's really ripe on the nose. Um, Again, what's interesting is it's balanced. It doesn't necessarily jump right out. It's kind of in sync with this this uh, herbaceousness to the wine. I almost want to say there's like a, I don't want to say medicinal, but like a eucalyptal or or some kind of like a, there's a vegetalness to this wine that's that's not done, you know, when you say vegetal to wine makers, a lot of times they get really offended. I, I, I'm using this in a positive terminology, which it, I guess it deserves to be said that, you know, all the words we're saying here are just repurposed. <laughs> there, were, there were words that meant something in the English language that were taken and using to make something different. Because certainly there's no bell peppers in this wine. Um, but I do get like this uh, red bell pepper kind of sautéed aroma. So I'm kind of in this Bordeaux camp right now with this wine. So I'm looking at potential as I smell it before judging the structure on it. And I, I, I'm in this Merlot, Cab Franc, Cab Sav kind of thing. Now, if I could detour yeah. you a little bit. Sure. You mentioned Rhone before. Yeah. Why, well, what makes you go toward Bordeaux instead of Rhone? What swayed you that way? Well, um, mostly because of this, the, the some fruit qualities to it. Like uh, with when it comes to Rhone, I usually get more red fruit for Syrah, and then more blue black fruit for for Grenache. So certainly this could be Grenache or a Grenache Syrah blend. Um, but I don't, I don't. I there's a there's a this plummy character that I kind of keep going to, and that plummy kind of feeling to me a lot of times leads me more into the Bordeaux category, category particularly Merlot. Um, and then there's also what appears to be some new oak on the wine. And so I could be mistaken on that, but uh, it does get this like baking spice. 
and slight vanillin or vanilla character. And that's also a little bit uncharacteristic of a lot of Rhone varietals. Although, of course, you can say, you know, the Australian Shiraz and, you know, a lot of New World producers, you know, make really great wine from Syrah that has, uh, you know, not sometimes judicious use of oak, sometimes a very generous use of oak. So, um, but when it comes to the old world, it's, it's a little bit more uncommon, although, you know, there are some exceptions there too, Jean-Louis Chave and Gugal and all those guys. But overall right now, I'm kind of in this, I'm still on the fence with between Bordeaux or, or, or Rome, but I'm kind of leaning more in that Bordeaux category. And finally, I'm, I'm gonna taste this thing. Those are some of my favorite wines when you smell them so much before you start to taste them. Yeah. Well, tannins are good. Powdery soft tannins that are firm, that are present, but they aren't ripping my face off. What now, is a, a tannin for? for yeah, tannin? so tannins, for, for those who don't know, tannins are basically proteins, uh, and they're a byproduct of um, basically anthocyanins, which are pigments and, and uh, structure that's extracted from the skin, seeds, or stems of the, uh, of the grape. So these tannins here are pretty, are pretty uh, powdery. Uh, but they're but they're firm. They're present, and I think the tannin structure is alluding to what this grape is. There is a presence of alcohol in the wine. I can, can still feel it in my chest. So I'm going to say this is above 14% alcohol. Um, the acid. Acid's a little bit muted. I'm going to say medium on the acid. Big tannins, or you know, present tannins. I don't want to call these big. Um, fruit, the fruit still, again, it goes redder for me on the palate than it does on the nose. Hmm. It does, it feels, the, <clears throat> the fruit feels a little bit more red and less, uh, uh, less dark on the, on the palate, um, which obviously is now calling into question my calls. Uh, <laughs> whether I want to stick with my call or not. Need a little more cherry instead of like plum. Yeah, it's like it's like more cherry raspberry than it is like plum or or, yeah. or blackberry. It's very pretty. The oak is I've, I've confirmed some use of oak on this, uh, um, but hmm. No, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna stick with my call. But what's interesting is I kind of want to go. Man, I kind of want to go old world with this. Um, there's just, I feel, this feels, it doesn't quite get the graphite y thing. Oh man, this is interesting. I hope you can edit out all my musings about this. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, one more sip and we'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make a call on this thing. Um, you know, blind tasting, as he, as he thinks about this, you know, blind tasting is always super humbling for people. Once you think you know everything about a wine, you've had it so many times, there's always going to be another wine that kind of gets you to think twice about yourself and maybe second guess yourself and get you to not go with your gut um, but that's the fun part man this thing is it's, it's telling me uh, Syrah on the palate and Bordeaux on the nose but I'm going to stick with Bordeaux man I'm going to stick with um, uh, shoot I, I actually feel this is oh gosh who's making wine like this I'm going to go Cabernet Sauvignon 2006 16 and uh, I'm gonna go Pacific Northwest too. I, I it doesn't have the extraction of a lot of California stuff. It's really balanced and very good wine. 
So, I don't know. Pacific Northwest, I'm not going to get any further than that. It might be Oregon. <clears throat> I don't know. You're, you're very close. Oh, cool. Very close. Um, going into this wine, who it's, I bought this wine from. It's Gamay, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Man, you did great. <laughs> it's so good. No, the person who sold me this wine, I, I, I told them I wanted something that was varietally correct, but when they, I, they sold me this wine, they told me what you were going to say. Yeah. And, and you, you pretty much said what they said you were going to say. Yeah. But I, I wasn't trying to trick you by all means, <laughs> but you got almost everything right except one thing. Yeah, that's the great. And that's where it's from. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. So this is a 2015 Cabernet Sauvignon, and the unveiling. Overall. Napa Valley. Oh, look at that. Oh, Some rain. Wow, rainy. yeah, that's a great rainy, uh, uh, awesome producer. Great producer. Um, but a couple things that I wrote down when you mm. were talking about it that you know usually you associate with Bordeaux instead mm -hmm. of Napa is the herbaceousness, yeah. is the vegetal, <laughs> is the extractions not as intense as it can get from Napa. Yeah. And so all that, it was kind of restrained, but it allowed for more balance, I think, in the wine than just really blowing your top off. It's a really good wine. It's a great wine. And I thought it was really funny that two Psalms get together and we pick a Chard and Cab for each yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny, Remy, I, I love their Chardonnay. I, I can't remember the last time I've had their Cabernet. Um, but it, it is, it's all those things you said. It's very interesting to me that this is... Um, that this is Napa because it does show I well for me as a talking point and something I'm very interested in when it comes to Napa Valley is it showcases the the erroneous view that Napa is hegemonic in its in its character like I said it when I was blind tasting it's not as extracted as Napa Valley right but that's not how Napa Valley is Napa Valley is so wide and diverse people oftentimes think of it in sort of the Robert Parker, big, huge, heavy-handed oak and all those things, or cult wines. Or mainstream Napa. Yeah, like mainstream Napa. And, you know, and, and Ramey's a very popular brand, but yet this is, to me, a very restrained, like, even the way I call the tannins, the tannins, to me, are more, like, softer, present, able, firm, but softer, powdery tannins, almost something mixed, like, more like Merlot-like to me, which is preferable by my palate. So I think it's really cool that the way I the way I was blind in this, I was actually kind of thinking, that's... You know, it's it's Cabernet, but it's all the good things I like about Cabernet, not the not the crazy like you know like oak eighty percent new French and like just crazy extraction. But I think you're right with some sort of new new oak percentage on there. I don't mm. think it's a lot, but I think there is some sort of new oak on there. But it's integrated very well. It's it's not very blowing well. your top off with the vanilla and spices. It's just a complement of it. Man, we're so basic. We brought each other Chardonnay and Cabernet. I've been you know there's nothing wrong with having good wine. <laughs> no, but it's just a, yeah. It's no, of course I I treat these are probably the varietals I drink the most of. But um, but it's just funny that for a blind tasting we pour these. I'm gonna we'll pour. We should next time we do it we should just do curveballs. Let's yeah, just yeah. do hardcore curveballs. Look forward to part <laughs> <Yeah>. everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. that'll be perfect. And, and like I said, I, I wanted, we wanted to give some wines that weren't trying to trick each other up so we could kind of flush out the tasting. He did a better job than me. Oh, uh, next wow. time, I, I won't freestyle as much. Um, but that's blind tasting. Uh, maybe we can end this up by, by talking a little bit about why this is valuable for, yeah. for just the layman person who knows nothing about wine. Because a lot of the times when you say, I just went to a wine tasting to your friends who don't drink wine you get the label of like a wine snob coming in a little yeah. bit. But how can we, you know, explain to people how they can use these tools going forward, whether it's picking wine off a grocery shelf or just knowing what you're drinking at home or knowing how to pair things. Why is a blind tasting important? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, I, I kind of touched upon it a little bit before I went into tasting, but uh, into my tasting. But um, I think the biggest reason for me is that wine inherently comes with a lot of biases for a lot of people. And it's ultimately, in America, it's seen as a very elevated 
sort of it's always seen as like sort of on this pedestal in the in the field of alcoholic beverages right in most other countries particularly old world european countries that's not the case it's just sort of like and hey, have some wine for lunch and wine for dinner and okay like it's just not a big deal but we have kind of made it that way in america and in some other parts of the new world as well and i think when you blind taste this the, the advantages of it that I, again i touched upon before are that you're removing the the cognitive bias of labels and of producers and of those that same that same bias that i touched upon in my tasting about napa valley is removed because well now the bias isn't even present because all i'm able to assess is what's in the glass i can't assess it's you know i, I with this 2015 15 mm-hmm. 15 Ramy, i couldn't assess a 2008 plump jack you know i couldn't assess uh, a you know opus one i couldn't assess all the other producers who make a certain type of wine from napa valley i could only assess what was in my glass and therefore and without any of those biases being known i am just giving you the authentic feel of what i think of the wine good wine tannins were what they were acids acids a little bit more medium and it was tasty it's a yummy wine and that's that's that yeah, I think expectations get in the way a lot when you when you've known the label, you've had the wine, then it's you expect it to be a certain way. Yeah, and then you can be more critical of it if it's not that way, or vice versa. Yeah, as we said before, it's it's very humbling to do something like this and throw in what you think is good wine, or throw a hundred dollar bottle in a tasting with a, a twelve dollar bottle, yeah. and and see for yourself what the differences are and experience it. And and I think it's a better assessment going forward of how you can choose the wines you like and know the wines that you're not a big fan of. Or if you're going to a dinner party and someone says they drink Napa Chardonnay, you know you know which kind of wine to bring them or which wine not to bring them, based on on the, your tools. Yeah, and I think uh, I think too the um, the concept of of like ask most people who buy wine right now they're buying based off of a label. Like most time, more often than not, they buy they go oh well, you know I like this label so I bought it. That's that's reconfirming the exact thing that we're kind of talking about here. That that wine tasting and wine tasting in general just gets around. You're, you're assessing the wine based upon the wine itself and nothing else. And I think that's far more important. Um, and so, therefore, it's a useful tool for anybody. You know, anybody. Yeah. Well, um, Joseph, I want to end this if you're okay with it. I've sure. got a couple random questions for you. Fire away. Fire at these. Yeah. Lightning okay. round. Here we go. What wine do you pair with bacon and eggs? <laughs> I'm gonna default to bubbles. I always default to bubbles. <laughs> no, cheating. on the spot. Yeah, but yeah, that's that is cheating. Um, uh, but I'm all, I'm also just thinking because it's breakfast food. Um, but what kind yeah. of bubbles? Champagne. Well, with, with a bacon, I've got to have something that's got some kind of structure to it. So actually, a pet nap would be pretty cool. Mm. Um, I think because it's lighter alcohol, lighter alcohol, it'd have some kind of structure to it. Um, that can match up with the bacon, and it have to it have the acid that I want to match up with the eggs. Okay. So that's what I'm going to go with pet nat, yeah. Bubbles, okay. bubbles, but pet nat, yeah. That's a solid choice. Yeah, I like to think so. Spaghetti and meatballs or chicken fettuccine Alfredo? Uh, chicken fettuccine Alfredo. Oh, no, no thought process No, there. that's zero easy. thought. Yeah, easy, <laughs> easy one. Yeah, that's softball. Stan with the Italian cuisine, what's your favorite wine to go with a margarita pizza? Uh, I mean, because we're in the Italian theme, I mean, probably more classic response would be Chianti or some San Giovo. I'm always, go with, always going to go with Nebbiolo, like... I don't care if it's too much. It's Nebbiolo, and we should all drink more Nebbiolo. <laughs> People listening to this, yeah, go find yourself a Nebbiolo. Always. Um, at any wine shop you can. You're never disappointed. Um, what's your wine? Of, you can't say bubbles again. Okay, I won't say bubbles. What's the wine that you're going to pair with the cigar? Oh, yeah. No, for cigars, it actually probably is the aforementioned Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Um, Napa Cabernet is always... Uh, I mean, I, I was kind of... Um, 
illuminated to this by actually Dylan Proctor when he was tasting with Jonah on Som TV. If you guys don't watch Som TV, you should. It's really, really great. Good content. And he was pulled out. They pulled out this old Maya Camus from like 76. I think he was actually drinking with Ian Cobble, uh, Master Sommelier. And they pulled, they pulled out this like 76 Maya Camus. And Dylan pulls out this fat cigar that he'd been working on for, I guess, a day or two. And I was like, man, I can't believe he's smoking. Uh, you know, it's old school, right? But I was like, I, I, I should give that a shot. And, of course, my wife heard that and bought me a whole bunch of great cigar stuff to get rolling into another vice of mine now for uh, for Christmas. And the first thing I did was open a 2010 Chimney Rock that I had in my fridge, and uh, my wine fridge. And it was like, oh, I see, they were right. All those old guys were right about this. this, this so it was awesome. kind of contradicting at first, you would think, but, yeah. but it's complimentary to each yeah, other. Yeah, and you really need, well, the thing, the thing, the thing there is, like, and I've done it with some Nebbiolos and obviously some some uh, dessert wines, ports, Madeiras, things like that. I think the thing you need there is fruit and power. Um, it, it, the, and, and it also, it just depends on the cigar, too. Like, I mean, if you're smoking kind of a cheapo cigar, it's just going to ruin the wine. But if you're smoking a natural premium cigar, you know, with some decent, some decent, um, some leaf, leaf in it, like Connecticut Shade sort of wrapper, a really kind of nice filler to it, it's going to be really complimentary. I, I, it's one of my new favorite things to do. I just can't afford to do it that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like good champagne. Mm-hmm. What's worse, laundry or dishes? Uh, laundry. Yeah. Which yeah. Harry Potter house are you? Oh man, see, this is a big topic of contention. <laughs> I always thought I was a Ravenclaw. I was, I was, I, I love studying. I'm, I'm always about, you know, learning more. It's like, oh, I gotta be a Ravenclaw. And my whole friend group disagrees and says I'm Gryffindor. But they're just sort of like, there's, you know, like the problem is like Gryffindor, you know, they just kind of, they got handed everything. The house cup got given to them basically a couple <laughs> times. Like, they're just kind of like the Mary Sue's. And I don't, I don't want to be a part of that, but. But I do have a couple of Gryffindor shirts, so they're probably right. The Gryffindor did? Yeah, I have a Gryffindor Listen to those who know us, huh? But I'd be, I'd be telling the Sorting Hat Ravenclaw, you know what I'm saying. Um, winter time or the summertime? All the time. I like all seasons. It's actually why I moved here, because like, they actually have four full seasons. We experienced them. Here. Yeah, it's like I, I grew up in Tennessee, and it's like you have summertime, hot summertime, and they have a decent window in fall and spring. That's it. I don't know. I just, okay. um, all seasons. Yeah, that's a, that's a cheap answer. I mean, I, I cheated. That, that's okay. <laughs> uh, shorts or pants, then? Uh, pants. Pants, yeah. okay. Um, ninjas or pirates? <laughs> oh, man, that's a good one. These are really good questions. Uh, these are these are very... We're really getting to the heart of the issues here. <laughs> yeah. These are very important. Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to go ninjas because pirates in their actuality were were just a little rapey. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> I mean, they're cool and like... They're cool and like you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, but in real life, they were kind of awful people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go ninjas. I like well, it. It's a safe bet there. Safe, safe bet. bet. You know, quiet. They do their handle their business and no one knows it. <laughs> Just get out of there. <laughs> Last question. This is the, the divisive one. All right. Burgundy or Bordeaux? Oh my God. Jeez Louise. Yeah, that's going to, you have to edit out the time I'm going to take to think on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and it could go any day. You, it could be a different answer, but in the moment right now, Okay, yeah, in the moment right now, I'm going to say Bordeaux because it's cooler outside and I tend to drink bigger wines and it's colder. So in the moment right now, but you know, you, you asked me that question in the summertime, it's going to be Burgundy, probably. Touche, we're yeah. kind of the transition to spring. Yeah, yeah. Hard question. Well, perfect. Well, <laughs> the great Joseph, I, I appreciate the time and you know going through these tastings and getting together today um, on Saturday um, and I look forward to doing it again with you. Yeah, Thank it's you. my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, Cheers. until next time. Yeah.